back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Peak Endurance Podcast with your host, Isabel Ross. As a personal trainer, accredited endurance coach, and now podcast host, Isabel is bringing you the best advice, tips, and tricks for your health and athletics. Having had raced all over the world, including participating in the notorious Barkley Marathons, she's now brought all of her knowledge and brought it back to you so you can now be an expert. So sit back, relax, and the knowledge you'll receive will have you off to the races. So you like running, but you're feeling pain or irritation and you can't enjoy it like you once did. Or worse, your performance is taking a big hit. Now you're reminiscing on the good times where the wind blew past your ears. Nature looked lovely as you passed it. What are you waiting for? Go and visit the specialist at Health and High Performance. With the latest in technology and a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can help you with all your running injury and performance needs. Let's get you back to doing something you love with the results you're capable of. Head over to healthhp.com.au slash run or you can find them on Instagram at Health High Performance. Health and High Performance are located in Mount Albert, Melbourne but are available for telehealth appointments not only Australia-wide but also around the world. So contact them now on their website to find out more. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Isabel Ross, and I'm the coach at Peak Endurance Coaching. Episode 155, can you believe we're up to that already, is another interview with the brilliant author Matt Fitzgerald. I've previously interviewed him about his books 8020, which discusses the concept of how running easy for 20% of your training is the best thing to do and hard for 20%. His book, How Bad Do You Want It?, which delved into the topic of mindset and mental toughness. And also the comeback quotient, which talked about athletes turning bad situations around and, and achieving well despite that. His latest book is called Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow, Elite Tools and Tips for Runners of Every Level. I contacted him. He was happy to have a chat about it. And that's what this podcast is. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate those of you who have taken the time to get onto Apple Podcasts to rate and review the pod. I read all of the reviews and they sure do inspire me to keep working on it. Thanks so much. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode please do go on over and rate and review. I, of course, suggest five stars, but hey, you decide. (laughs) Also, don't forget to go to my website, peakendurancecoaching.com.au to get on my email list so you can get my newsletters full of interesting articles and tips. And you will also find out about a live night I'll be doing in July all about developing mental toughness training for ultra racing and trail racing. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Matt. I certainly did. Hi there. My name's Josie and I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I've been training under Isabel at Peak Endurance Coaching now for around four to five months. And in that time, I can honestly say that she has been absolutely fabulous coach. Uh, my last training block hasn't been ideal with getting COVID than uh, getting an injury, but she was absolutely fantastic. She was so supportive and she kept adjusting my program to suit my training so I could keep going in some way, shape or form. She's also really, really responsive to messages, which I absolutely love. And she's always up for a chat if there's ever any need. 
Um, it's very, very clear that Isabel loves running and she's all she's very passionate when it comes to helping her athletes succeed. So with that, I can highly recommend her. Um, she's fabulous. Thank you. Hi, Matt, and welcome back to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Great to be back. Now, of course, we've, um, you've come back on because I just recently read your latest book, Run Like a Pro, in brackets, even if you're slow. And, and I just had to hear more about it from, from you. Um, so I thought, you know, might as well see if you can come on. And once again, you're very happy to come on. So that's great. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the idea behind the, the title of the book? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I guess if I have a, an overarching philosophy of um, endurance sports and the quest to improve and uh, fulfill your potential as any type of endurance athlete, whether you started young or got into it at uh, an older age, or you're naturally gifted, or you're more of a, a back of the pack type, um, I believe in what I guess what I call a best practices approach to that quest to improve, which means emulate the elites. Um, you know, the best are the best, similar to any other profession, honestly, if you look at arts, science, the military business, um, that best pra practices approach is there's a, there's a lot to be said for it. Science is great and I'm into science and I pay a lot of attention to science and there's a good deal of science in that book. But that real world focus on, you know, look at the people who have best solved the problem of maximizing your potential as an endurance athlete. Well, those are the Olympians. Um, I Even as an athlete myself, that was always like, you know, granted, we have to scale things down to our level, um, but the general principles I have always believed apply to everyone. Um, and in uh, 2017, um, I tried a little experiment, just sort of putting my money where my mouth was. Um, I spent an entire summer living and training with a team of, of professional runners in Flagstaff, Arizona, here in the States. And at that time I was 46 years old. And even when I was 26, I was not an elite level athlete. Um, but I just went all in just doing things the way they did it. To, my hope was to prove that, you know, even if you're not young and, and super gifted, you can benefit from modeling your approach to improving after that of the elites. And I had, just a transformative experience in that summer and, and really came away feeling like, yeah, it, it's true. <laughs> like what I've always believed is true. Um, I ran my fastest marathon of, of my life. I had run more than 40 marathons. I hadn't set, I hadn't broken my PB in nine years. And again, I was 46 years old. Um, but I set a PB in the 2017 wow. Chicago marathon. Yeah. So I wrote a book about that experience, which is called running the dream. Um, but I followed up with this book because running the dream is really about my story. And I wanted to collaborate with Ben Rosario, the team, the coach of the NAZ elite team that I trained with that summer to make something more prescriptive. You know, it's like, well, not all of us can spend in a summer, you know, training with a team of professional runners, but what's the next best thing. Yeah. And this book really represents that. 
you talk about um, being a, a fan of the sport, and I guess being a fan of the sport, you're more likely to um, know what they're doing and, and uh, what the elites are, uh, elite runners are doing. Would that be right? Exactly. Um, yeah, in the first chapter of the book, I share kind of a laundry list of reasons. Because it, you know, it was my, you know, I started running when I was 11 years old. And, and, but I became a fan of elite running at that same age. In fact, it was, um, you know, the great American marathoner, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who really was my first hero in the sport. She won the, the gold medal in, in the first ever women's Olympic marathon in 1984. And I just thought she walked on water, at, you know. So at the same time I became a runner, I was also a, a fan of the sport. Um, but I realized when, uh, when, I, when I started coaching runners as an adult that that wasn't the case for everyone. And in fact, um, you know, the vast majority of recreationally competitive runners don't pay much attention to uh, the elites. And, mm -hmm. and how are you going to know what the elites are doing to be great if you don't pay attention to them. Um, you know, honestly, that's only one of several reasons that um, I think, you know, recreational athletes really don't, you know, if you look at, um, you know, what the pros do and then what most other runners do, they're almost opposite <laughs> in terms of like, you know, training, diet, like mental preparation, recovery. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is the fact that, you know, by and large, recreational runners just aren't paying attention to the pros. And and I'm I'm guessing from what you've said in the book as well, but that maybe some runners also feel well. And I guess that's also why you've got that part in brackets is well, I I I'm not like them. Um, but you make the point we're actually you know more similar than than you think. Um, and and at the end of the day, we're all human beings, so we yes. can take on the principles. Yeah, I think, yeah, there is, uh, it's understandable, right? Because, I mean, the very best runners in the world run amazingly fast for amazingly long distances. And it's easy to think, you know, they're like a different animal for, from me. But um, genetics tells us otherwise, actually, that it's only a small handful of genes that separate the elites from the rest of us. And actually the elites themselves are genetically very different from one another. It's not like you have to have one exact set of genes to become great as an athlete. For the most part, we're the same. We're, we're all human, which means that um, by and large, you know, the same methods that work for the pros do work for, for everyone else. Again, like, you know, the qualifier I always give is that you have to scale. Um, so you know, the obvious one is that you know, elite runners run a lot. And they run more than most recreational runners could, could possibly tolerate or let alone benefit from doing. But still the underlying principle is not, you have to run 180 kilometers per week. The underlying principle is that you should run a lot relative to your own personal limits. And yeah. a lot of recreational runners don't even do that. They don't even, they don't even give themselves permission to run a lot uh, you know i'm too slow to deserve to you know what i mean you know put more time into it but you know my my argument is that everyone everyone who has a passion for the sport does deserve to do what it takes to improve yeah and, and i i agree 100 now you have a section about the five rules of pro style planning 
Can you sort of give us a little little snapshot of that? I know it's a big, that's a big ask, a little snapshot, but. <laughs> yes, you know, I, I actually, you know, without the book in front of me, uh, I can't, <laughs> I can't recall. All that. right, well, don't worry, I've got my book in front of me. I'll, and I'm yes, even sticky yeah. yeah, notes. Um, I'll, I'll um, quickly go to that. So the five rules you talk about, start where you are, choose a direction. Oh, no, that, yeah, let's choose a direction. Um, almost always do less than you think you could, which I find um, interesting, uh, which I've always said in regards to like speed work, that you should always yes. feeling like you could do one more and don't race too often. I think that's so important and rest and take breaks. Yes. So yes, you know, start where you are is um, again, like all of these, they sound um, almost banal, yeah. but but very few runners actually do each of them. Um, and so, you know, a, the mistake a lot of runners make is that let's say, you know, they want to qualify for Boston in the marathon. So they train as if, yeah. you know, they know what their qualifying time is and they train as if they are that athlete already. And that's wrong. The idea is to end up there, but you need to train as the athlete you are today. So you have to sort of look at yourself in the mirror and be very realistic and honest with yourself. You know, this is where I am and I need to tailor my training to meet me there. Yeah. Um, because, you know, even if it sort of feels a little too easy at the beginning, that's great. You know, you've got 20 weeks, <laughs> you know, before the marathon. So if you always train as the athlete you are today, you will over time become the athlete you, you want to be. But, uh, you know, again, a lot of athletes make the mistake of jumping ahead. Um, you know, choosing a direction refers to, um, you know, obviously, like, you know, running is a goal-focused sport. Like, you there, there, there's an end point. You know, it's not... You know, it's not this open-ended. I just want to improve and improve in an amorphous way for eternity. Like, no, there's something out there you want to achieve, and so that establishes the direction of your training. And it's very specific. You know, you know, marathon fitness isn't the same thing from 5K fitness, which isn't the same thing as obstacle race fitness. So that's what choosing your direction means: just understanding what your endpoint is. Um, and not fixating on the endpoint. That's why I say don't choose an endpoint because you don't know circumstances will determine how far you're able to get in the direction you want to go. But it is very important to know which direction you want to go in. Like, what's the exact flavor of running fitness I'm trying to build here? Uh, so yes, so that's choose choose a direction. And was number three uh, always do a little less than you think you yes. could? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, that one, again, it sounds, I don't know, maybe that sounds uh, uh, counterintuitive. But, but I do find that um, many runners want to do as much as they possibly can, you know, exactly. the time they have available, which to, seems seems efficient and seems to make sense, you know, yes. it doesn't always. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the way I like to drive home this point um, is to say, you know, if you look at an example of an all-time great running performance, um, so like, you know, Bridget Koske running a 214.02 marathon for, for women or any other sort of like, you know, like incredible outlier performance by an individual athlete. If you look at the training of the athlete who achieved that performance, 
you will find that things went wrong, that it was not perfect. So, you know, even when someone has done better than any other human has ever done before, their training was not perfect because it's never perfect because that is the nature of it. So if you plan perfection, if you plan for perfection and refuse to back off from that, you're, you're heading for disaster. Um, Because again, like, you know, you know, the, you know, the best case scenario is imperfect. So it's best, you know, it's not a matter of lowering the bar and saying, you know, let's just try to get a B instead of an A. Uh, no, like the goal is to get an A, but the best way to get there is to be a little bit conservative in your planning. Like have a vision, again, that comes from that honest assessment, looking in the mirror and understanding like, you know, where you are fitness wise, what you can tolerate, making a plan that is based on that realistic assessment, but then dialing a little bit back from the best case scenario. You know, if everything goes perfectly, this is what I think I could do. Okay, just trust that that's not going to happen and dial back. So, you know, plan for, you know, 90% of that, not 100%. And, you know, every now and then, you know, things actually go better than expected in training. You know, more often they go worse than expected <laughs> and, and you have to adapt, but sometimes they go better. So, you know, you can, you can be opportunistic um, and, you know, if things are going great, you know, you can, you know, in, you know, just uh, you know, make your goal paces for certain workouts a little more aggressive or add, uh, you know, a kilometer or two to your long runs ahead of schedule. Um, so you, you need to be adaptive no matter what, but if you plan a little bit conservatively, you'll have to make uh, fewer adjustments. Uh, you'll have a greater likelihood of just, you know, staying on the rails mm-hmm. as you pursue your goal. Yeah. They don't race too often. Yes. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, this is a classic one. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that you know, you know, recreational runners do almost everything differently from from the elites, and this one is toward the top of the list. You know, recreational runners, a lot of them want to do a park run every Saturday, yeah. um, and go all out and think that they can improve every time. If you look at elite runners, you know, they race pretty sparingly, um, you know, middle distance track runners like milers, you know, when they're in season, they'll race more often because yeah. it's a mile, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take that, that much out of you, but it, you know, in looking at them, it's important to understand that, you know, racing is how these runners make money. So they are incentivized mm. to race. So, the, you know, it's not like they want to just you know, kick up their heels and race once every five years, you know, they need to race to make money. At the same time, they can't afford to race poorly. Like when they do compete, they have to be at the top of their game. So they're actually a great example because they have incentives in both directions to race, but to to not race so often that they're not at a hundred percent. So they actually, they, they actually show us how often we should race if we want to be at hundred percent when we do, I mean, a lot of, a lot of runners, you know, that's why we, that's why we log, you know, that, that's why we get out of bed in the morning and, 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 you know, and do all the, the training that's required to be our best. We want to compete. We want to, you know, put that number on our bib, but um, you know, the way I, the way I look at it is that you can either, you can either race often or you can race well you choose, <laughs> you, you, you can't do both. And it's okay. You know, like it, uh, there, there's no law against racing often, yeah. 
I just want those athletes to be open-eyed and understand that you're compromising your performance by doing that. If you do, if you're really more focused on improvement and being your best, then you might need to cut out some of those park runs and be you know, a little more selective in your, in your racing. <laughs> and in saying that, how do you feel about say like practice races? Do you think it's possible to actually, you know, have like a B race, you know, those sorts of things? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, the easy answer and the correct answer is it depends. Um, yeah. As a general rule, you know, the, the shorter the distance of the competition, the more often you can race at that distance. So milers can successfully can successfully race more often than 5k runners can succeed. <laughs> can successfully race more often than half marathoners and so on. Yeah. As you know, as you go up the chain, it just takes, it takes, you have fewer of those races in you. Um, and if you race at a mix of distances, then you can kind of pragmatically plan an appropriate balance. But yeah, absolutely. There is, there is a time and a place to race at less than 100%. You know, I, I'm a big fan of actually sort of, you know, rust, rust buster races. Yeah. Uh, because you know, when you, you know, let's just say you go through, let's just say you're a marathoner and you, you train for and complete a marathon and then you take a little bit of a break and you have kind of an off season. Uh, and then you, you know, you start to build a, a base with an eye toward training for your next marathon. Well, a number of weeks have gone by since the last time you really went deep into the pain cave Yeah, and you know, that's sort of like a muscle you need to train. Like you forget, uh, you know, the women I know tell me it's a lot like childbirth. Because <laughs> <laughs> <It is>. <laughs> <laughs> you forget how much it hurt after a certain, yeah. a certain amount of time. Um, and that's what makes you think about having another child. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to get back to running, you know, it's kind of similar where um, it can be, it can be smart just when you're, you know, when you're, you're just, you know, you're toward the end of base training and, and, and about to, you're almost ready to start getting more specific toward whatever your next important race is to do, you know, a short race, like, a, you know, 5k, 8k, 10k, just to, to remind yourself how much it hurts. And, and I have found both with myself and other athletes again and again, that they get a nice bump in their training from doing that. So the race itself is a little bit of a shit show, you know, cause like the, you're not really all that close to peak fitness. It's a little bit premature, but that's, that's fine. You know, you're not looking for a PB in that race. It's just, it's a rust buster. Yeah. Uh, you're just reminding yourself like, this is what it's like to race. It ain't pretty. Um, and then you sort of come out of that and your mind is recalibrated in a way that allows you to, to go deeper into the well in your subsequent training. Yeah. And and I I agree. It's a good idea to get that out of the way before the important race. So the last one is rest and take breaks. And I find it, um, you, you talk about, um, also their relative rest and absolute rest. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, that's another one where, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of recreational runners conflate two, di- two fundamentally different concepts. Yeah. Um, when they think of rest, they think of a, like a day off, yeah. like you know, a, a day with no exercise. 
And very often when I create custom training plans for athletes, um, one of the most common bits of pushback I get when I deliver one of these custom training plans is, oh my God, you have me going six weeks without a rest day. And I explained to them, it's like, there's a difference between rest and recovery. Yeah. Um, if you are an, an athlete with, you know, like a you know, pretty solid level of fitness, you can get all the recovery you need to improve without actually resting for, for an entire day. Um, because let's just say, you know, you're an athlete who uh, trains on average 11 kilometers per day. Mm. Well, if you if if you're that athlete, and of course it's not that every single day, but let's just say that's the average. average. So 11 kilometers is just no big deal for you. You do it, you know, almost every day. So for you, if you have a day when you only run 5k, that's a recovery day for you. Yeah. Are you are you are you resting? Are you not exercising? No, but that like. 5k like a 5k easy run is so easy for you that you're actually processing absorbing um all the training you've done preceding that and you're ready to go coming out to the side now every athlete needs to take absolute rest days sometimes you know even the elites but the elites make you know because what they're trying to do is train right up to their limit you know because they're competing against the best in the world so they can't go over their limit yeah. That's disaster, but they want to go right up to it. And, and so, you know, absolute rest is kind of a blunt instrument. You know, it's kind of a sledgehammer approach. Whereas, you know, if you want to really find your limit, you need, you need um, kind of more nuanced tools and relative rest is, is one, one of those tools where you don't necessarily have to, you know, go an entire day without training to get the recovery you need. It can just simply be a lighter day yeah. where, where you, you're still active, but it's lighter. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Also, you talk about, you know, rests between seasons and um, uh, like you say here, non-elite runners are far more likely to try to keep the momentum going right. after completing a training cycle, which is something I see too. Yes, yeah, very common um, because, you know, you know, a, a very large fraction of, you know, a, adult competitive runners started as adults. Mm. So you know, their background very often, it's not as if they have, that's, it's not as if they haven't exercised before they, they became uh, runners, um, but their exercise experience is, is more very often in the kind of fitness realm uh, where I just, you know, I want to look good for the beach <laughs> or whatever. And, and that, and the mindset, I call it get, get fit, stay fit, yeah. uh, where, where you're not, when you're not, you know, chasing PBs, um, you know, the way, you know, like a, an athlete does, you're not really an athlete. You're just a person who's exercising. And those goals like weight loss, improving your health, living longer, um, you know, improving activities of daily living. Those are um, those are achievable in a sort of open-ended kind of way. So you know the general pattern is you aren't exercising. You decide you know what this won't do. I need to get fit. Yeah. Uh, you you get a gym membership. You start exercising. You you find a routine that gives you the results you want, and then you just hold steady. 
Um, and then, so when these individuals, they transition from that, from, you know, from, from that, you know, kind of gym based exercise to running, they take the same mindset with them where they think when they build up a certain level of fitness, you know, maybe they, you know, let's say they train for their first half marathon and they're like, wow, I'm fitter than I've ever been. And, you know, in the past, they've always, when they got to a certain level of fitness, they expected to maintain it. With running, you can't do that because, you know, you're training, you know, you're training toward peaks, you know, fitness peaks, you're going up, 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 up. And when you get toward the, you know, the very, that very peak right before you taper for a race, you're actually training at a level that is not sustainable for you. It's okay because you're not going to sustain it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, those two weeks of it's, you know, the, the physiologists refer to it as functional overreaching. Like you can still adapt to it, but you can't sustain it. Yeah. Um, and so if you try to sustain it, disaster will happen. Uh, if you do what the elites do, you, you build up to that, you know, functional overreaching period, then you taper, then you race, then you take a break and you start over. And, and so the, you know, the period that follows, you know, you know, that little break um, is a period where you're voluntarily giving away fitness. And, and the thing that's very counterintuitive for a lot of runners is that that's the best move you could possibly make for your future as a runner is to actually get less fit. Um, and, and it's true, you know, the elites model it for us, but it, it is counterintuitive for a lot of runners. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, now, you also talk about how running seasons us against injury from running um, by actually, you know, the, the consistency. But can you explain further into this concept? Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a subtle concept um, because, you know, obviously, you know, you know, so-called overuse injuries are very common in running. And, you know, you know, the simple way to look at it is, oh, running caused the injury. Um, and in a sense, that is true. <laughs> but, but it, you know, the, you know, the, the thing is like, you know, running also uh, prevents injury. It also, running builds the durability that makes injury less likely when, when you run more. Um, and the way I try to drive home that point is, is by saying like, like who is more likely to get injured after a 20 kilometer run, a runner who runs 20 kilometers every Saturday or a runner who's never run 20 kilometers before, runner who's never run, run further than 10 kilometers before. Ob the obvious answer is the runner who's used to doing that. Yeah. And, and so that drives home the point that, you know, by running, <laughs> you know, if, if you've never run before and you go out the door and run 20 kilometers, you're almost certain to get injured, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, like, you know, running, uh, it sort of inoculates you against those injuries. Now it's just, it's a dance constantly because, you know, it, it is a high impact, um, activity. So the risk is always there and that's okay. Just because you, you know, you get injured doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Um, but you know, if you're able to just, uh, kind of really finesse that dance and, and, and listen to your body and, and develop gradually and take a step back when you need to, um, the running itself 
will minimize your risk of getting injured. Where the risk comes is when you make jumps. So beginners get in, injured often because they're going from, they're, they're jumping from the couch to running period. Uh, yeah. But even an experienced runner can, can uh, you know, can experience like, you know, an unaccustomed jump in training stress by, you know, suddenly introducing speed workouts that are very aggressive, even though they haven't done a speed workout in four weeks, that, that sort of thing. So consistency is what really, uh, is what truly inoculates you against that. Um, you know, if you're always maintaining a, a pretty high baseline with your running, uh, then, then your chance of getting uh, injured as a result of taking a jump in your training is minimized. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, now, I know we've discussed previously when we talked about your book, 8020, about the, you know, the moderate intensity rut, but you sort of talk about that again in this book. Can, for any of those listeners who don't know about this, can you explain that one? Yeah, uh, you know, so, you know, when I, when I spent that summer training with the, with the pros in, in Arizona um, in 2017, um, I was able to do, you know, I, you know, I was quite a bit slower in terms of my race times than, you know, even the women runners on, on the team, uh, you know, they, they could blow the doors off me in a race of any distance. But I was able to do my easy runs, which was actually, you know, 80% of the running with, you know, when I first, when I first showed up there, I, I couldn't even keep up. Well, I could have, but it wouldn't have been smart yeah. um, with, with any of them. But, you know, by halfway through, I was able to do my easy runs comfortably with the women on this professional team. And by the end of the summer, I was able to do some of my easy runs with the men on the team without going too hard for myself, even though my marathon time was more than 20 minutes, <laughs> you know, slower than theirs. And, and the reason was that they were running at a very, 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 very easy pace relative to their limits. Yeah. And, and so that just goes to show you, and, and that's the case. It's even more the case in East Africa, you know, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, with you know the very best runners on the planet. You know, they they do their easy runs, which again account for about eighty percent of the running, at uh, almost laughably slow paces, like you know paces that most runners could keep up with. Um, and be, and why? Because it works. And, and you know the mistake that that most runners make is like. It, the mindset is sort of like they need to make every run count. Yes. You know, every, every time I lace up my sneakers, like yeah, I've got to at least like if if it doesn't hurt at least a little bit, um, then how could it possibly be doing it me any good? But you know, these professional teams, they they train in groups and they're talking the whole time. You know, you know, you know I, I I witnessed that not just with that group but with other with others. And the reason they can talk is because they're running slow enough. <laughs> To talk so and actually there's science showing that that um that threshold of being able to speak comfortably carry on a conversation aligns with the threshold that separates low intensity from moderate and so it's really important to be below that threshold when you intend to be not all the time I and mean, there is a time to go hard and and, and really suck wind uh, but when in the the 80 of the time when you intend to be at a physiologically low intensity, you should be able to comfortably carry on a conversation. And the research shows that whereas elite runners spend 80% of their time at low intensity, 
most recreational runners, even like, you know, competitively recreational runners spend 50% of their time at moderate in, in mm. intensity, which is like, yeah. And so even if you don't run all that much, even if you're like a, you know, a 50 kilometer a week runner, chances are you're doing like a 50, 50 intensity balance. And so you can actually, without even increasing the amount of running you do shift that 50, 50 from an 80, 20 yeah. in emulation of the pros and you'll just feel better. And in that 20% of the time when you're supposed to go hard, you'll be able to really outperform what you were able to do when you were always kind of a little bit tired because nothing you ever did was really all that easy. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're, yeah, when you're always that little bit tired, you can't go as hard as you, you need to go when in the quality sessions. Right. Yeah. Like physically, you're not ready. And also you're just mentally. You know, it's like if every run kind of sucks a little bit, like, you know, can you really go deep into the well you know, once a week? It's hard to even mentally. Yeah. I believe we've only got like a set of mind that we can go into the well, like per week, per month or whatever it is. And, and yeah, if you use it all up on your easy runs, then then you've got nothing left, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, I hear a lot of runners, you know, just generally when you're talking to runners, talking about, you know, their keto diets or vegan or high fat, low carb, whatever it is. I don't know. There's so many. Um, you talk about how the pros tend to eat everything. So can you tell us why um, it might be more important to focus on eating everything rather than uh, focusing on a specific diet? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, diet is a minefield. And so uh, whatever comes out of my mouth now is likely to piss off a fraction of people listening. But I, I'm just delivering the facts. And, yeah. um, and uh, you know, it is, it is true. And I've, I've researched this deeply. I've traveled all over the world, uh, sitting down with elite athletes, just, you know, looking at what they eat, um, yeah. analyzing what they eat. And it, it's just fascinating, like, in you know, all continents and across endurance disciplines, so not just running, but, you know, triathlon, swimming, cycling, cross-country skiing, rowing, yeah. there are consistent patterns. Um, and one of them is that, um, you know, the diets of elite endurance athletes tend to be extremely well-rounded and inclusive, which is almost the opposite, or it is the opposite of what like most, you know, fad or popular diets, mm. uh, you know, most of those, most of those diets are defined by restrictions, like, you know, no-go zones, like you can't eat this, you can't eat that. Um, that is not what the elites do. They, they you know, go out of their way uh, to have very diverse uh, and varied diets in terms of, you know, food types, macronutrients. Um, and that is, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, kind of a, a I won't go down this road, but you know, there's evolutionary reasons that this makes sense. Like, you know, human beings were, that's what almost makes us different from almost every other species on planet is that like at every stage of, of you know, uh, you know, our history, we became more and more omnivorous, more and more diverse in yeah. the way we ate, you know, beginning from, you know, when, when our deep ancestors first came down from the trees to try to live on the ground, you know, it's just like, what, what was the result of that? The requirement to diversify our diet. So we're really, really good at eating broadly. And when we try to narrow uh, our diet and exclude a lot of things, it's not always impossible, but uh, it's risky. 
Um, so, you know, it's also, it's all, you know, there's research showing that people naturally, and it makes sense given our evolutionary history, that we prefer to eat varied diets. And, that, and that's one of the reasons that it's hard to sustain very restrictive diets. So this is kind of a good news story. You know, the elites eat everything. Yeah. So you can also eat everything and, and not only get away with it, but your, your chances of remaining healthy and getting fit are, are greater if you do. I mean, I, I've always believed that if you eliminate a food group, you're going to be eliminating certain parts of nutrition that you actually require. So you'll miss out on minerals or something somewhere. That's exactly it. And, and you know, apart from the psychological factor of having yeah. to not eat something you enjoy eating. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, there's another big difference between pro and, and everyday runners, and, and that's the difference in mindset when it comes to bad workouts. Can you tell us what you learned about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the one I could talk all day about because <laughs> it's, you know, it's really... Um, I, I think, you know, like I, I'm assuming here, but I think like, you know, you know, the, the average competitive recreational runner who has never met an elite runner probably assumes that what got the elite runner to the level they're at was a talent and B hard work. Yeah. And, and that is true, but it's incomplete. <laughs> And you know what is strike what becomes strikingly apparent when you spend time around a lot of these athletes is that they are all the same mentally on certain levels. They all have different personalities. You know, they're as individual as as anyone else. But it is very clear when when you like you know the team in Flagstaff, Arizona that I was with. There were thirteen athletes. That's enough athletes to see some common patterns, right? And and the, and the pattern that I saw, um, you know, was like, you know, actually not like only one of the thirteen athletes on that team was considered to be like destined for greatness when he was, uh, you know, in in high school. Like most of them, they obviously you you have to have physical talent yes. you know, to become that that goes without saying, but. But most of the athletes who, you know, go to the Olympics or, you know, finish top five in the Boston Marathon or whatever, they, they were not the top runners in secondary school or in, at uni. Uh, they were a little bit behind those athletes. But, you know, when it came to taking that last step, the decisive factor, the, you know, the way I look at it is almost like, uh, you know, to become a great runner you have to slay two dragons uh, on the path to that pot of gold that is, you know, the you know greatness as a runner. The first one is you have to have physical talent to slay. Okay, good. You have physical talent to slay the first dragon, but there's another one, <laughs> and and to slay that dragon, you have to have a certain psychological makeup. You have to have a certain mental wherewithal to slay that second. Like that is the one that gets you, you know, that last step to the pot of gold. And, um, and, you know, like there are two parts to it. One of them is, you know, for lack of a better word, like toughness, like grit, um, resilience, that, that kind of thing. Like, absolutely. That is a factor, but that, that one, that's one's the obvious and celebrated one that everyone kind of knows about. Uh, but there's another one, which is the one that your, your question speaks to, which is, 
it's more like um, judgment or or like uh, horse sense. <laughs> Um, a good word for it in the in the psychology research is prudence, like just like actually just making good decisions, like workout after workout, day after day after day. It sounds so, you know, it's just there's no sizzle to that, yeah, yeah. but it's like it's it's extremely powerful uh, and really underappreciated. Just the the capacity to just um, put your emotions in the background and make smart decisions at key, at key points. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so one of those things, like, you know, when I was with that, you know, that the NAZ elite team, they, you know, the runners on that team, they bailed out of workouts way more often than any of the recreational athletes I coach would ever do. Like if it just, you know, if one of them just had like a flare up of chronic sinus issues, he, he would quit. Yeah. you know, a third of the way through a workout. And that would be unthinkable for a lot of recreational runners. They, they would think, oh, if I can't complete this workout, I can't possibly achieve my goal. Or if I don't complete this workout, I'm not a good runner. Like they overinterpret the consequences of making that decision. When in fact, if it's just, if you were just like, you know, Lieutenant Commander Spock, and had no emotions and looked, were able to look at the situation completely rationally. It's just, it's just a matter of live to fight or another day. Like, you know, the rational, smart, long-term decision to make is to quit now and be better a week from now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you also talk about how, um, you know, the good workouts aren't the flukes, you know, like, they don't happen by accident. So pay more attention to them. Yes. Yeah. That's another matter of like, kind of like, um, yeah, it, what, what it comes down to is if, uh, you know, there's a certain, I guess, uh, like sense uh, internal locus of control and self-efficacy that comes with achieving, reaching the highest levels of the sport where you just trust yourself um, and you, you believe that the answers are inside you and you're not over-dependent on external proof that you're on track, external, you know, you know validation that you're good and getting better, um, which is extremely important. You know, it's tricky if you don't have it, acquiring it is, is, is easier said than done. Uh, but, it, you know, it's worth highlighting that, that, that it, it, it's a simple fact that you know, if you have a, you know, a fantastic workout, if you just knock it out of the park and just have one of those, you know, workouts that you want to tell your kids about, you know, that it can't possibly be an actual miracle or fluke mm -hmm. or luck. Like you're in order to achieve that performance, your body had to have been capable of it. Like yes. that is how fit you are. Um, but, you know, if you're training appropriately, for you know any type of running event, you know you're you're going to be hugging up against your limit, and you know as I as I stated before, it's never going to go perfectly. Like that's how the process is designed. You know you you are pushing yourself, and so you can't push yourself mulishly, just ignoring warning signs that you're doing too much. You have to be adaptive, but 
you know, in a, in a, in a very in a sort of an opti optimally planned and executed training cycle, you're going to have a handful of great days. You're going to have a lot of average days and you're going to have, you know, probably more bad days than great days, actually. Like if you're doing it right. Yeah. Um, and so the mistake that a lot of runners make is that um, anytime they have a bad day, they, they take that as uh, they have like a, a totalizing way of concluding that, that, you know, that one workout represents where, where they are uh, and where they're going. Um, and elite runners understand that, no, that's just the process. And as long as I don't go too long between great workouts, then I know I'm on track. It's only really the great workouts that tell you how you're doing. Um, and that's just, that's just reality. I mean, it, it's true. I'm not just like telling you a happy story to make yes. you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yep. That's good. Now, when it comes to racing, how, how can we be more like pros and, and deal with race discomfort? Yeah, that's another uh, Pandora's box. Um, yeah, and very personal for me. You know, I, I I mentioned I started running when I was quite young, and for me, I ended up um, discovering that that was a weakness of mine. Um, I had, um, I mean, racing is painful. I mean, yes. it's a, it's a. This is not, you know. This is not tennis. Uh, well, I guess tennis can be painful too, but you know what I mean? Like there's no ball, there's no timeouts, there's no teammates. Uh, it's just you alone with your suffering. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a sport that's not for the faint of heart. Um, there's a great quote that I recite all the time from the former uh, American record holder at 5,000 meters, Bob Kennedy, uh, and I'll have to paraphrase it. Uh, but he said, you know, the thing you have to understand about racing is that it hurts. And if you can't accept it, you're not going to get very far. Um, and that just nails it. Like yeah. it does hurt. And if you're, if you're actually good at hurting, um, the more, you know, the better you are hurting, the further you're going to get, you know? Um, and for me, when I was, when I was a young runner, I was not good at hurting. Um, yeah. Actually, I, I actually burnt out and quit and uh didn't run for about eight years and then got back into it in my 20s and and when i did get back into it i had a monkey on my back because i did not i saw myself as a coward and because i knew that other runners um you know were were able to do something that i wasn't able to do and it's really sort of voluntary right it is you know, there's no physical limit you're just making a choice not to go deeper in, into the pain cave um, and, but for me, you know, even, even when I'm at a conscious goal, um, you know, to, to learn to suffer well as a runner, um, it took some time, uh, but that was the first step. Uh, and I realized for myself, and now I, I preach that to other athletes who, who have like, you know, a natural reluctance, you know, to, you know, to, you know, just to go deeper into the pain cave, make it a project, like make it an actual separate the goal of leaving it all out there from other goals like you know achieving a certain time or finishing in a, in a certain place in your age group 
Um, you should be more satisfied if you left it all out there than if mm -hmm. you set a, a PB. Um, and the, the you know the mechanics of it are kind of secondary to that. Uh, you know, the first step is actually to make it a conscious goal for yourself. Yeah. And so basically, just enduring that discomfort means you're more likely to be able to again. Yeah, you know, the way I look at it is that, um, you know, each time you start a race, you have a certain, there's like a platonic ideal of your perfect performance. Like, like you are physically capable of something. Almost every runner falls at least 1% short yeah. of fulfilling that of 100% of their physical potential. And there can be various limiters. It can be just, you know, dumb mistakes, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a shoe coming untied, but like, you know, the, and pacing is a, is a huge one. That's probably actually, that's probably number one is, is pacing, but, but number two is, yeah, that natural reluctance to, to hurt um, because it is, it is voluntary. And it's like, our limit is kind of just, it's fuzzy because it really isn't the physical that you should only be at your physical limit when you're 10 meters from the finish line. <laughs> Other than that, you're up against psychological limits. Yeah. Um, and those are kind of mutable. You can, you can push them toward that 100%. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, so you're leaving, you know, you know, the, the, the less, the less willing you are to hurt, in pursuit of 100%, the further from 100% of fulfillment of your, your actual physical potential for the day you're gonna get. Yeah, and, and like you said, that's where pacing is a, um, a big part of it because um, if you pace it correctly, you are left you know, at the end feeling that, but if you have to suffer through the entire race, I guess that makes it even harder. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you know, it's fascinating. If you look at, um, you know, there, there, there have been studies done um, where athletes will do some sort of time trial or race and they will um, provide uh, subjective ratings of effort. So this is like your perceived effort, like on a one to 10 scale, like how, like if 10 is my, if one is a walk in the park and 10 mm -hmm. is my absolute limit of how much it could possibly hurt to run, uh, they give ratings at various points along the way in, in time trials. They've done this with runners, cyclists, others. Um, and in a perfectly executed race, it's linear. So it's like a straight line where obviously when you take the first step of a race of any distance, you should be at a one. <laughs> you know, you just started. <laughs> if you're sprinting, you're doomed and yes. you're probably not, not at a one. Uh, but then in a well-executed race, it, it, all of the physiological measures are kind of less predictable than that. None of them has that kind of, that straight linearity, but that's what you're actually trying to do is like to, to comprehend, okay, what is, how much time am I likely to spend going from point A to point B? Yeah. And then how, how hard should it feel at, you know, point A point one yeah. forward. Um, so that's what you're really doing. So yeah, if you're, if you're hurting a lot, 20% into the, 
into any arrays of any distance, uh, you're doomed again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I often say, you know, because I tend to do ultras, but you see people going off like they're at, they're at park run, you know, going for their 5k PV and they've still got another, who knows, 80, 90 Ks to go. And it's, uh, it's interesting. Yes. Well, you know, if you're a fellow competitor in one of those races, you're glad to see it. Because yes. you, know you're, you know you're going to be ahead of them at the finish line. I mean, you're that a little works. bit sad for them, but you know you're going to beat them. Yes, that, that's exactly right. It, that, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's a very, I think it's also a very hard thing for people to control, you know, when they're feeling good on the start line. Yeah, it, it, is, it is very hard to control. And, and the way to look at it is that, um, you know, the, 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 there's an easy advantage for you in not being that guy or a gal. You know, it's right there for the taking because it doesn't like that's independent of fitness. This is about execution. Yes. You know, so you can beat a lot of runners who are, you know, actually fitter than you by seizing that advantage so so that's the way to look at it instead of just getting caught up and making the mm. same mistake other people are making making you don't have to pace perfectly just pace better than the people around you <laughs> yes, you know it's a good like, point. if you look at it that way um i think it makes it a little easier to like break out of that rut yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed this chat. And, and like I said, I've, I love the book. Um, this is it for people who haven't um, seen it yet. Um, I, um, I, I find, as always, you know, like I find it easy to read. Like you, you make it easy to understand the concepts that you're, you're putting across. So thank you for that. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that's different about this book is that uh, you know, it's co-authored. Yes. So Ben Rosario, the, the coach of the NES Elite team, I've mentioned a few times in this interview, uh, we kind of take turns uh, yes. sharing our perspectives. And uh, I kind of like that because we have different voices. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit more scientific. He's a little bit more folksy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. No, no, I, I like that too. And, and um he would sort of sometimes, like you say, you're more scientific and he would give the real world application, I guess, of, right. of what you were saying, which um, then I found interesting as well. So where can people get your book? Uh, in your part of the world, I have no idea. <laughs> right, I'll tell them Amazon. <laughs> so I'll, um, okay. I'll, put some, I'll put a link up there. That, well, that's where I bought it. So I'm sure there's other places. We have other online bookstores and that sort of stuff, but... That's generally my go-to. So I'll put a link up for that. Um, I, I highly recommend it. So anyway, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you, Isabel. Always enjoy talking to you. All right. See you later.